Hello, everyone. My name is Brennan Moore. That noise you're hearing is my ventilator. Welcome to the Guest Awakens. Presented by Page Turners, they were not my Star Wars podcast. And today, I'm very excited to welcome a fellow podcaster to the shenanigans. The, uh, she is the host of Daughters of Therix, which is an incredible podcast. She is Eleanor Mueller. Hi, Eleanor. Hi, Brennan. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for joining. My pleasure, genuinely. So, um, you know, your podcast is really amazing because I think the analysis of Star Wars using sort of the real world political context is I think a wonderful thing because on all corners of the internet you hear people saying keep your politics out of my Star Wars well if you're listening out there I hate to break it to you Star Wars is political it just is and it always has been so um, you're, um, what was it specifically that made you want to start a podcast? So for me, I'm a person who I spent a lot of time reading Star Wars, watching Star Wars. This is kind of where I formed community. Mm-hmm. But as as a trans person, as a queer person, as a person who's just kind of interested in the way that people work, I have mm-hmm. always had a real fondness for certain types of political philosophy, um, um, some uh, sort of sort of online analysis around radicalization and and the way that certain forms of of oppression kind of perpetuate themselves. And this is something that I didn't realize was like a political interest until I was like in my 20s like as a teenager I was like you know everyone's into this stuff but I I realized it was just like something that Mm -hmm. I was specifically really into and so I have for years kind of separated those two things because you know people will have their the political analyses of Star Wars etc etc um but I never felt like it was really worth it to to talk about star wars historically politically from a queer perspective in a really holistic way in in a way that wasn't already being done because there are Mm -hmm. queer star wars podcasts there are people who are really interested in like certain historical influences on on the costumes and the weapons and that's Mm -hmm. really really cool and i think that's really really important and so um the the way this podcast happened actually was i was at celebration london uh, which was last year, mm-hmm. 2023. Yep. And uh, after the last day, I had taken, um, I was rooming with a friend of mine and I had dropped them off at the train station. And then I went, what am mm-hmm. I supposed to do now? Like I got to spend four days of incredible community with people who talk about Star Wars and, and work on Star Wars and and do all of this amazing stuff. And more than anything this show was born from that feeling right after celebration where more than anything i wanted to give back and i Mm -hmm. went wait there's actually stuff i want to talk about there is this whole like heightened interest in in a political star wars 
like capital P political Star Wars after Andor, because this is like six months mm-hmm. out from Andor mm-hmm. uh, se- uh, season one finishing. Yeah. And that had just finished. And a couple months prior uh, 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 was the release of uh, Chris Kempshaw's book, The History and the Politics of Star Wars. Yeah. And yeah. the reason I, I'm really fond of that book specifically, and I, I talk about it all the time, is because I have a lot of uh, books that talk about um, social politics and all sorts of uh, stuff in Star Wars media. But Chris takes a really, again, a holistic view. He talks about um, the EU. He talks about legends. He talks about Mm -hmm. um, canon uh, book media. He, um, like this book had to be put out at some point. So at some point he had to start writing, but he talks about the very early days of the High Republic. Like, yeah. All all of these different angles. Um and reading it, I went, oh, there is there is something here that is worth talking about yes. always. always. There is an endless list of stuff that we could talk about. And might as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned wanting to get back. That's why I started my plan. Once it was right after Solo came out. And the internet, being the internet, was being grumpy as usual. <laughs> and I said to myself, you know what? Maybe I should get in there and just put a positive voice out there. So that's where my podcast sort of came from. Was the idea of wanting to get back. And wanting to get back something meaningful. Uh, people always ask me, "Can how is it you can talk about Star Wars every day on your podcast? And I'm like, it's really that big. There's that many things to talk about, whether it be politics or theology or uh, elements of war and things like that. And the the corruption of government, all kinds of, uh, and even good life lessons about how we can be better. Star Wars has it all. And it's something that we could talk about till the end of time, and there would still be more to talk about. There'd still be more Star Wars. Yeah, and there'd still be more Star Wars. And you mentioned Andor. I mean, Andor was... I remember when they announced it. I thought, okay, that's interesting. When I saw the trailer, I went, wow, okay. And then I saw the show... And it completely surpassed anything I could have imagined. Um, so, so you said that that show really, like, spoke to you. Um, I mean, it's all Star Wars I think speaks to us, but there's something about Andor that just stands out. I think it's it's um, going more into the like the boots on the ground approach to Star Wars. Um, what was it about the series that really struck you? I think I think what got me was personally, I at no point thought that the series wouldn't be good. Mm-hmm. I was I, I had this like almost conspiracy theory about the, the Cassian and or show that it would be mm-hmm. like surprisingly excellent. And it was surprisingly and excellent, it was, but yeah. it was also 
like it had a lot of heart in a yeah. way that I wasn't really expecting because they were like, this is going to be a spy show. And I was like, that sounds cool. Like we're going to get some ISB yeah. stuff. That's I think been really lacking. Um, and uh, just sort of that angle from the empire. And, mm-hmm. but I wasn't expecting it to have to be so genuinely emotional and so evocative. And yeah. I, yeah. I like stories with a lot of heart. I like stories with stories with a lot of soul to them. And so to be able to have this story that is complicated and nuanced, but also, has has still has a little bit of that that Star Warsy fairy story morality tale mm-hmm. to it. I think was a was a real trick, and I think it's why it resonated with a lot of people. It yeah. made it a little bit easier to get into like the thriller aspect. Yeah, and uh, you know, you still you still get the 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 cherry on top. Yes, yeah. I tell you, the scene when Martha talks to Andor about that's just love. Mm-hmm. It makes me cry every time I watch this scene. It's it's brutal, and yeah. I mean just just all of all of um all of that performance in that episode yeah. is yeah. It's it's one of those. Tra- I can't remember which. I think it's episode um five. No, sorry, seven? six, seven, seven. Yeah. yeah, it's it's after Aldani. Um, yeah, and there are all these character beats in this episode that are just characters talking to one another mm-hmm. and and having these complicated relationships and you have i mean in in that same like story setting you have cassian and marva cassian yeah. and vix cassian yeah. coming back to his home and finding that it is fairly hostile to him and yeah. um i only i was just rewatching the show a couple of weeks ago and i realized that those sorts of transitional episodes like episode seven and episode eleven for whatever reason, I mm-hmm. think it become my favorite because it's where you really get to feel that these characters are people and not just like figures moving from event to event. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the character development in those episodes is extraordinary. And mm-hmm. I think that there are so many great things about the show that we could spend hours upon hours um so I do have to make mention, I have to admit this, I do have a crush on Dead Ramiro. <laughs> as horrible as she is, there's something about that, I don't know, it's weird. No, I get it, I'm a sucker for a mean blonde. Yeah, oh yeah, um, but she was terrific, I mean, there yeah. not, so. Excellent performance, um, across the board. Yeah, and and certainly I talked like for hours about Andor, and I could go on talking about Andor. But so I'm wanting to get to know a little bit of your Star Wars journey. Absolutely. So I've got the three questions that I always ask my guests. Are you ready? I'm very ready. Okay, so how did you first come to Star Wars? That's a really big question for me, Mm -hmm. because... I think a lot of Star Wars fans, you're introduced to it when you're young and you're just in it. You are there. And it was way weirder for mm-hmm. me because <laughs> I remember as a kid, I was in proximity to Star Wars, but I was mm-hmm. growing up in the early 2000s. And that meant that that's when the prequels were coming out. That was the height of mm-hmm. Star Wars games. And I had Lego Star Wars 2 for the game. Yes. yes. And I really liked it. And I had seen the original trilogy. I couldn't tell you when. It's hard yeah. to... I think anyone born around then probably has no idea 
or a lot of people don't know when they mm-hmm. first watch the original trilogy because it's just kind of baked into culture. And I played that game a lot because I liked the Lego games because, you know, I was a little kid. And I I liked the vibes. I thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. I had a couple of Star Wars toys, but not like a lot. And I didn't own the films. And the prequels are coming out and these Star Wars games were coming out. And I didn't quite vibe with them. Something wasn't mm-hmm. clicking for me. And part of mm-hmm. it was that it felt so big from the outside yeah, that I didn't yeah. feel like I could ever like that could ever be something that I was a part of. And mm-hmm. until I was a teenager and I started to realize, oh, I'm a little bit into this. I'm especially mm-hmm. like, I really like the original trilogy. Like that's kind of, I I started being a part of online culture uh, at a point where mm-hmm. uh, all the people who were in those same spaces were kind of a generation above me. And mm-hmm. so a lot of those like media, like, like the media taste that I acquired when I was when I was uh, an older kid and a younger teenager, um, a lot of that that media taste was kind of, I would say, learned from people who were a little bit older than me. And mm-hmm. so, I wasn't watching the Clone Wars with kids my age. You know, I was I was I think I like the original trilogy. And then in 2015, The Force Awakens came out. Yeah, and I went, oh, I get it. I actually really like this. Yes, and I just haven't been letting myself because I didn't feel like I could. Um, and I realized, oh, I love the original trilogy, and I I learned in a few years. I I learned a lot of affection and appreciation for the prequels. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I never like really actively hated them, but I just kind of didn't get them. Um, yeah, and kind of the work and the 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 love that people who grew up with those stories uh kind of poured into them since has helped me see oh there's a lot of value here there is a lot to be said about them and and loads of my peers like the prequels are their star wars mm-hmm. but for me it was like really being really affectionate to the original trilogy and not admitting it to myself specifically thinking i'm not really into star wars i'm not really into sci-fi there isn't really a place for me mm-hmm. in there and then there was um, kind of all of a sudden. And frankly, part of that is because they started a new canon because of the reboot. And yes. like, yes. I would have loved to be a kid who like grew up reading the X-Wing books, was able to get into like uh, Heir to the Empire and stuff. But that kid would have been me. <laughs> yeah, that sounds amazing. But I just, I don't think I ever would have if there hadn't been kind of a void and kind of a, I'm starting here and can build up from there. Yeah. And now I'm someone who for canon, I am on top of it. Um, Me too. And that mm-hmm. never would have been possible for me. I never would have felt like it was even like a reasonable goal to have mm-hmm. with decades of stuff before me. And so like, even though it's really unfortunate that like we in some ways have kind of lost relevancy for certain stories, I mm-hmm. have benefited a lot from that big sea change. So yeah, it was, it was, it was a big arc for me getting to the point where I'm at now. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, for me, I, I don't remember the first time I ever watched um, Star Wars. So I do have a memory of watching the Muppet Babies do a riff on Star Wars before I'd ever seen it. Um, 
I probably first watched the trilogy, the original trilogy, probably 1989, on VHS, um, in the old days of technology, because I'm one of those old people. And I just, I fell in love with it, but I think that what really ignited my passion was in the late 90s with the Star Wars re-releases. And then with the Phantom Menace, that's the time that my fandom went completely full bore. And ever since then, I've been a nut about Star Wars. You can't see it on the camera, but I got a corner of my room that is completely taken up by Star Wars Black Series figures and Funko Pops and posters all over the walls. It's crazy. But that was sort of my entrance to Star Wars. And the great thing about Star Wars is that there isn't just one way in. There are many ways to enter the saga. So um, my, my next question, what's your favorite Star Wars film? If you had to pick one. My favorite Star Wars film is The Last Jedi. Yeah, okay. You you it, are it now... hit me just right when it came out and uh You are now on the VIP list. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You made me very happy. <laughs> I see your poster behind yes. you. Oh yes. It's taste. I love it. What is it about the film that resonates with you? I think when I was getting into Star Wars, one of the things that that like that just clicked for me that was like oh this is a thing that i like about this was i was so fond of han solo and then han was just not in the last jedi yeah and 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 like i i only feel this in retrospect but looking back it is is wild to me that it it is my favorite movie because he is nowhere in it but Mm -hmm. i think i think last jedi takes seriously certain parts of star wars that i felt were kind only kind of implied in the past there's a degree mm. of spirituality about um about ray and her interactions with luke and about ray and her interactions with kylo and and just kind of her mm-hmm. relationship to the force that is the jedi are hyper present in the prequels but mm-hmm. they don't they largely don't because they are on this like uh large scale downfall arc they mm-hmm. largely do not uh interact with this, with the force any really like emotionally and soulful way mm-hmm. and um i felt like the last jedi had a lot of that i felt like it looked really good and i felt like it knew exactly what it wanted to be mm-hmm. it had this story of these people against insurmountable odds and it, I don't know. It just clicks. It's a good movie. <laughs> I don't know what to tell it you. It does. It does. It is to me. Some people say that Ryan Johnson doesn't understand Star Wars. And to them, I say, what movie are you watching? <laughs> this movie understands Star Wars maybe more deeply than any Star Wars film. Uh, understanding the lore and the, and the adding to it, but also this idea of 
failure is the greatest teacher, or you know, the greatest teacher failure is, as Yoda says, you know. It, it, there are moment after moment in the movie that are so moving and so profound. Um, I, I just think that on so many levels, it is an, it's magnificent. And the, you're right, the spirituality of it is great. Um, one of the things that I connect with with all Star Wars is the spirituality. Because I, I hate to use the word, but I would call myself a religious person, I would say. And the spirituality of Star Wars connects with me on that level because I'm like, oh, yeah, that's like what I believe in. You know, the ideas of the Force, the ideas of, of all the various teachings really connected with me and I think The Last Jedi has some of the most amazing spiritual moments in Star Wars um, but that's a very good choice I mean what a movie Yeah, I it mean, really is extraordinary Star Wars is different things to different people but mm -hmm. Johnson definitely gets the way that I see Star Wars yes yes Yes, and, and also there's a sense of reckoning with the Jedi's failures. Mm -hmm. And The Last Jedi is really the first movie to address it outside of the prequels. And showing why the Jedi matter in the end. Even though they made mistakes, why they matter ultimately. I mean, You've made me very happy by picking that film. So then I'm glad, you know, I'm glad I had the right choice. Yeah. Well, you know, there's no wrong choices here. Um, <laughs> uh, now, you may have already answered this, but who's your favorite Star Wars character? So I said that Han Solo brought me to Star Wars. I would mm. not any longer say that he is my favorite character. Oh, okay. I have, uh, I have evolved. Um... I waffle. I have a lot of favorites. Mm -hmm. But when they said that Daisy Ridley was going to be in another Star Wars movie, I wept. I'm mm -hmm. going to pick Ray. Mm -hmm. I mean, yet again, yet again, you've made me very happy by saying so. What is it about Ray that you like so much? I think Ray is a person who goes through a lot of bad stuff and messes up a lot mm -hmm. um, to a degree that I think isn't always allowed uh, in the protagonist of, of a film like that or a film mm -hmm. like those, I should say, like the three that she's in. And she's a person who makes big mistakes and mm -hmm. changes a lot, but is always trying to make good choices yes um and and always trying to seek something kind of outside of herself um and even when like i would say the one of the times when she is the most wrong about something which is i can go to kylo ren aboard the supremacy in the last jedi and yep. i can get him to to kill snoke and join me yep 
and she is she ultimately is kind of dead wrong right he kills stoke and then they have a problem yeah Mm -hmm. um she still comes to it out of this sincere place of i am thinking about this i am considering my options and i think this other person deserves a chance i think that my role in this story in this in this event is to reach my hand out to someone and be there for them whether or not they deserve it and Mm -hmm. i don't know i like a good character i like a really good person uh in my characters not to say they're the only ones that can be good Mm -hmm. uh just um i like i like good people who make who struggle to make good choices because choosing good things is hard all the time it is it is um, yes, I was very excited as well when they announced the film. Um, it looks like it'll be the second one in their lineup. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes, but uh, mm-hmm. hopefully we don't have to wait too long for it. Um, we'll you know, I, I miss my girl already. You know. I miss Ray. She's so awesome. It, Daisy it... Ridley was like, nobody knew who she was. Yeah. And they cast her in Force Awakens. And I think they cast the right person. Because <laughs> she's perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like when they cast people that I don't know in yeah. Star Wars. Because it helps me kind of separate it from... I mean, it very much adds to the escapism, right? This is a person mm-hmm. who I'm not familiar with, and now I'm seeing them on screen for maybe the first time. That goes a long way for me. It is. And and she's just so just wonderful person who is a makes mistakes but has such a pure heart. Mm-hmm. That just, you know, she she is this like just the sweetest person. And I can't wait to see more of her because I miss her already. So hopefully they don't take too long getting that movie out. Yeah, it's already been uh, half a decade since The Rise of Skywalker. It's it's so scary to think of that. That it's almost been 10 years. My goodness. Time proceeds. It does. Incessantly. All right. So I always like to throw in a bonus question just for fun. Um, Mine would be, what is your favorite Star Wars sound effect? Oh. Or one do you really like? That's hard. Okay. I don't know if it's my single favorite, but it's up there. Mm-hmm. And it's the, like, the klaxon alarm sound from the beginning of A New Hope. Yes. Yes, <laughs> that that's that's the type of sound that I mean they've reused it since in in other yeah. in other uh, shows and movies and stuff. Yeah. But that's one of those sounds that just sticks with you. And I've always had this like this like horrified fascination for like citywide nuclear warning systems and that kind of stuff. Like that kind well, of I, I especially as a too. kid, I found that I so chilling. It's very strange. Yeah, um, that like for a while I used. I think I used the 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 Tanta V4 like alarm sound as like my my alarm sound mm-hmm. when I was yeah, a teenager yeah. in high school. Um yeah, I'm gonna go with that one. 
That's a good one. I mean, Star Wars is full of this glossary of great sound effects. Mm-hmm. That sound so different than what you might think of as traditional like sci-fi sounds. Uh, ben Burt, I mean, is a genius. Mm-hmm. Reading some of that sound work. Um, yeah, no, that's a good one. And if I had to pick one, well, the classic TIE Fighter scream, you know, that's a classic sound. Everyone knows that one. And when and there's a lot of sound effects in Star Wars that when you hear it, you know immediately that's from Star Wars. Yeah. All right. All righty. So now we kind of get into the bulk of our conversation. And and to be fair, the world sucks. So we're going to try to, you know, make things a little nicer. But, you know, it, it's rather odd that I say that. Because our topic is politics and Star Wars. And particularly the politics of the prequel trilogy. So I want to sort of cast our minds back to 1999. It was an interesting time. In the United States, the economy was doing well. There was a national surplus and sort of the national debt. The dot-com boom had just started. The movie theaters were filled with great summer popcorn films. And along comes the Phantom Menace. And as the movie opens, the first thing we see, turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic, the taxation of trade routes to outlying star systems is in dispute. And there was a whole generation who went, what the heck is that doing here? <laughs> yes, that, that's, that, I remember it well. Now, I was about 13 years old, so it didn't bother me. But some of the older fans were like, that's so boring. In fact, the generation was just like Perrin in Andor saying, oh, it's so boring. And then, of course, the movie gets into vote of no confidence, um, accusations of corruption, many, many, many things that were political in nature. To which the fans of that time said, what the heck is this doing in my Star Wars? It's not like it is today with the, forgive the expression, but the keep your woke politics out of Star Wars. This was more of a, that's so boring. Why are they mentioning it? Um, so... We'll start with, Ellie, what are your thoughts on just the politics of the Phantom Menace itself? I think the, I think the Phantom Menace is this really interesting beast because mm. on one hand, it 
is kind of the most dry, most methodical Star Wars story in the way that its plot is structured, in the mm-hmm. way that it solves its problems. And on the other hand, it has this reputation of being like really geared towards kids with the Jar Jar stuff and with like the pod race and stuff. So it's mm-hmm. like the Phantom Menace is this really weird beast. And you can tell from it that kind of where George Lucas was at, where he was going, I want to do Star Wars. I want to build up to where we got in episode four. And Mm -hmm. and he had ideas about the fall of the Republic and the Clone Wars and all this stuff. He had certain Mm -hmm. ideas about that that changed radically, but uh, as far back as, you know, 1977, 1978. And um, there are old interviews of him talking about his original ideas for things. And I think George Lucas as this, person who more than anything was invested in how do i tell a story that is interesting to me i mm-hmm. i've always felt that george lucas makes movies for himself yes um yes. as the, as this fan of certain parts of like pop history as this guy who um who liked cars and and yeah. not liked he's yeah. not dead uh but I, I feel like George Lucas makes movies for himself. And I think in in the 70s, we can see, in the 70s and the 80s, we can see a certain degree of political awareness in what George Lucas does. But it's kind of, mm-hmm. there there are ways in which, like, he really gets some stuff about what's going on in the world and some ways where he, he has his own ideas about it. And you can tell that he really cares about that stuff still mm-hmm. by The Phantom mm-hmm. Menace. And I think... This is this is something that was told to me. When something comes out is as much... The politics of a thing is as much a feature of when it comes out as it is a feature of what is in the thing. Mm-hmm. So for, um, for The Phantom Menace to be a story with conflict, but without out-and-out war, I think shows where certainly like the american public was at uh culturally Mm -hmm. like it was this fairly prosperous time and you know this was the end of history things don't happen anymore like conflict is something we aren't dealing with like like in in like a a public consciousness way and there was stuff going on but like it was completely different and then Mm -hmm. i think the juxtaposition between like the phantom menace and attack of the clones which is this movie that comes out um you know, like seven, seven, yes, exactly. Um, and then uh, Revenge of the Sith, which directly references yeah. uh, 9-11 and the Night of the Long Knives and stuff. Um, I think you can see in Phantom Menace that George, at least to me, wasn't quite feeling the war yet. You know, it didn't, yeah. that part of it wasn't quite real. It was, how do we get to a dictatorship? How do we get mm-hmm. to rising tensions in the galaxy? Well, we have a guy who is amassing power and gets elected Supreme Chancellor. Yeah. How is there like political unrest in the galaxy? Increased taxation and corporate mm-hmm. overreach and all of this stuff that happens. And by the time of the Attack of the Clones, then it's like intrigue and spies and war and conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that Phantom Menace doesn't have intrigue, but I think that's the, the primary difference is Phantom Menace is 
kind of plotting and its pacing and in its politics, because I think that's where a lot of people were kind of at about U.S. politics at the time. Mm-hmm. It was just like a system that happened. Yeah, and it was, you know, it's interesting that I guess my thesis is that a lot of people didn't like it because they weren't ready to hear it. In the sense of, as as you say, you know, that time period, particularly in 1999, I think a lot of people were thinking, this has nothing to do with anything. And then, of course, give it a few years, and of course, it means everything. And um, one of the things that I think is that the prequels were ahead of their time. In terms of Phantom Menace comes out, it introduces the political ideas that people say are boring. And, you know, this has nothing to do with anything. Why do we have to sit through this? Fast forward to today. These are the kind of things we talk about every single day. And so, in the sense of, I think in 1999, because we were on a cultural high, people didn't want to listen or didn't understand the message. And and of course, as you say, George Lucas had been thinking about these ideas for a long time. Um, he wrote the original draft in 1973, the year Nixon got kicked out. Well, resigned, but basically kicked out. Um, so he was already thinking of those kind of things. And it's so weird that it's almost prophetic what was being said in the Phantom Menace. Because two years later, 9-11 happens and the world completely changes. Um, So what what is it that sticks out, um, particularly with the prequels as a whole, that are things that, that are lessons that you think, I mean, obviously all the lessons in Star Wars are applicable to nowadays, but what in your mind stands out in the prequels in terms of dealing with the modern day? I think there are two things that come to mind for me, and I'll see if I can mm-hmm. tie them together. The first is that there are ways in which Star Wars, kind of the first six movies as a whole, are born specifically out of George Lucas's particular political anxieties. Yes. He had this, I don't know where he got the idea, because frankly, all respect to him, is not it is not true, but he had this idea that that Nixon was specifically fixing for a third term in office, that he wanted to become this dictator. Mm. And so the idea of someone who uses the system to gain that power and then abuse it is something that Lucas was really cautious of and really afraid of. I don't think mm-hmm. that fear is unfounded. Let's be clear. I'm just saying yes. that yes. he believed that's what Nixon was doing. That does not seem to be bared out or borne out in any of the yeah. uh, uh, relevant history. But, um, and I, I wonder if that's one of the reasons why the Phantom Menace wasn't especially res- resonant because I think a lot of, you know, fans between the age of, let's say, 15 to 30 probably weren't that politically anxious. No, um, no, no, you know, especially. 
Hey, you, you grew up in the 80s. Like, you're probably reasonably, you know, well enough off. You're into Star Wars. You like, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're a big fan of, uh, you know, God, I can't, I can't remember what Star Trek was coming out at the time. I'm sorry. Um, well, Deep Space Nine and Voyager. <laughs> thank you. Um, but I think that's a big reason why it wasn't as res- resonant. But within that anxiety, here we go, I'll tie it into my next one. Within that anxiety is this acknowledgement of there are complicated, sometimes miserable systems mm-hmm. that we exist within. There are um, political conflicts in which we are not uh, we are not necessarily represented, where uh, as normal citizens, uh, our voices are not heard, even if there are a, a handful of good people within the system. Yeah. And because of that, because of that corruption, because of that abuse of power, it can be really easy to not just be become angry, not just to, to feel like a degree of outrage, but to give up, mm-hmm. to, to become entirely disillusioned with the system to the point where you go, the system is bad, and so I'm not going to engage with anything yeah. beyond my own stuff ever. And let's be clear, if the system is bad, it should stop being bad. We should make yes. it less bad. I'm yes. not I'm not uh gonna be out here saying, well, you're just saying the system is bad because no, no, sometimes systems are bad. But I think what George Lucas was acknowledging was that it is so easy for while you are going, <laughs> the system doesn't work, I'm not going to engage in the system, and I'm not going to engage in the political process at all, besides yeah. being frustrated. Um, and by political process, I don't just mean I'm not going to vote, but I, but I mean, not engaging with the political process as in, I'm not organizing, I'm not talking with my friends. I'm not aware of anything that's going on in the world because it feels bad. Yeah. And while you are doing that, the people who want to use the system for their own ends are going Mm -hmm. to do that. And those ends are very possibly and very likely not in your best interest. Yeah. If there are yeah. people who are going to abuse their power and form autocracy, they're going to do it while you're not looking. Yeah. And so I think, I think the prequels are the story of a galactic populace who is scared and who is anxious over like economic concerns and of, uh, politicians who get really corrupt or really complacent yeah. and this guy swoops in and he just says oh i'm gonna make it all better and he makes it better just exactly how he wants it there which is know. bad for everyone else yeah um, george lucas as we know studied anthropology and sociology in college and there's a great line in the ahsoka series where balin says to shin if you look at history, you see the same patterns again and again. None of these ideas are new. This is how Julius Caesar created an empire. This is how Napoleon crowned himself emperor. This is how the Nazis were um, the fascists in Italy or any other group. So these ideas are not new. The idea of I can fix all your problems 
just give me the power again and again we have seen that it happens they 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 gain this power by gaining the you know the, the attention of the people and also as you've mentioned a sense of playing on people's fears and anxieties but also, I think you hit it right on the head, which is the most dangerous thing that could happen is for us to stop caring. The moment we stop trying to fix the system, you know, there's a line in episode two, the moment we stop believing in democracy is the moment we lose it. So I think you're absolutely right, is that we have to be careful with apathy, with nihilism, with the idea of, of well, it doesn't really matter, so I'm not going to do anything. Because that's the worst thing people could do. And then, you know, before you know it, it they've lost. The people have lost. Um, so one one of the things I wanted to mention now, sort of getting into Attack of the Clones, is so you and I first met on Alex Damon's book club. Yes, we did. And you made a mind-blowing comment. So, yeah, Ellie and I are huge fans of the High Republic books. Yes. And just recently in the books... The Nile are trying to create themselves as a legitimate government, trying to be recognized by the Republic. Well, that's we haven't gotten to the end of that story yet, so we don't quite know what happens. But I can imagine nothing good happens. Well, ultimately, some good will happen, it seems. It, it, it seems like the, the Nile state does not uh, work yeah. out yeah. <laughs> long and, and term. You mentioned, you mentioned that maybe the reason the Republic didn't want to negotiate with Count Dooku and the Separatists is because they had already had a bad experience trying to recognize another state with maybe the Nile. Um, it, am, am I am I paraphrasing that correctly? I would say generally, yeah. I would. I I want to clarify. I think yeah. in a new hope, we get this idea that the republic existed for an obscene amount of time mm-hmm. without conflict as a static entity, yeah, and that there are degrees to which that definitely isn't true because yeah. at certain points the republic has expanded they've undergone wars and stuff but essentially mm-hmm. since the sith wars since the rusan reformation yeah. nothing no conflict no war no anything and mm. i think that is an idea that the republic itself as an institution by the time of the prequels is really attached to mm. so whenever anything comes up that might you know, that might kind of make it so we're not doing uh, 10,000 years of, of peace and prosperity or whatever yeah. Obi-Wan mm-hmm. says. Um, 
that they're going to oppose that. The Republic is this rigid thing that has to be like this. Damn what anybody else wants. And so, you know, a couple hundred years prior, you have this uh, what what is essentially like a puffed up pirate group like they are terrorists. They are conquering a portion of the galaxy a fairly large portion of the galaxy all things considered mm-hmm. and saying this is our space and then they try to play nice um and the republic very reasonably goes what? no what i'm not going to recognize you as a formal state um mm-hmm. for good reason um at, at no point has the higher public phase three so far made a good argument for the nile state being <laughs> one that should be recognized and so I'm sure that past this point, the decision of Chancellor Lena So not to formalize, formally recognize Nile space, to insist on continuing this conflict, and which mm-hmm. they eventually, presumably, to some degree, win, yeah. I'm sure becomes mythologized, becomes part of this, we as the Republic are the singular institution that exists, that does not, that, that does not fracture or go, or go to war or cede territory to people mm-hmm. who claim it. And so you get to the you get to attack of the clones and a couple of years prior you have this huge like separatist crisis where all of these systems are going wait the republic yeah. is kind of dysfunctional it is mm-hmm. corrupt we have uh like horrible corporate overreach in the senate like this is not this doesn't work Newt Gunray mm-hmm. didn't go to prison or anything and they go, I think it's time for us to secede, to become anything else. And the people who are still with the Republic, you know, prodded on by the guy at top, mm-hmm. guy at the top who really wants this conflict, is go, wait, no, we have to be this static, united entity that does not fracture, mm-hmm. does not engage in conflict, and most especially, does not recognize another sovereign nation. Mm. And so even though the CIS might, to a degree, have a legitimate claim to power, because they're not occupying land, they're not occupying space, no. they're just saying, this, these, us, we're going to go do our own thing, which is, yeah. sure, um, the Republic goes, you're valuable, we don't break up, we're not going to recognize you. Get back over here. Sit your butt in the Senate seat and keep doing the Republic with us. And they say no. And then they go to war about it. So the Republic insists on being rigid and refuses to change. And then it uh, has a horrible war, finally, yeah. Yeah. for the first yeah. time in thousands of years. Yes. Um, but yeah, I remember when you said that um, on Alex's show, it completely blew my mind. I was like, I had never considered that. That is a fascinating idea. Um, so, Attack of the Clones has, of course, the separatist crisis. It also has, um, maybe one of the most important moments is Chancellor Palpatine needs emergency powers because they are in a crisis. This reminds me one of my favorite movies, The Dark Knight. There is a quote in The Dark Knight, but the context to the quote is that it's a discussion about how Julius Caesar usurped power because there was a crisis and then never gave it up 
and thus we get the Roman Empire. It's the idea of there is a crisis, and certain people throughout history have manipulated a crisis to put themselves in power. Um, so what did you think about the idea in Attack of the Clones of the Senate voting emergency power to Palpatine? I think it really speaks to the way in which the easiest and most manipulable feeling mm -hmm. that you can engender in a person is to make them afraid, particularly yes. if you have power. You can make them afraid of a type of person. You can make them. You can make a person afraid of another country. Mm -hmm. um, you can make a person afraid of the economic situation in their home and let's be mm -hmm. clear there are certain bits of trepidation that are reasonable and correct yes. it is reasonable to be to, to say this thing is a danger this thing is a concern yes. or we need to be aware of this or etc but once you go from mm -hmm. that to saying in attack of the clones the question raised is kind of how much do you centralize power? Mm -hmm. Because we see that what's given to Palpatine, certainly by the time of Revenge of the Sith, um, is too much power for one guy. Yeah. Um, you know, when when the when the Republic is reorganized, uh, the em the Emperor is the only guy who can actually say whether or not something passes in the Senate. Yes. Right. But on the flip side, the Senate is dysfunctional in, in Attack of the Clones. They cannot mm -hmm. make decisions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you get why they might want to have a figurehead that is making decisions, that is making these calls, especially one that has a pretty good track record that seems like a nice guy. You 100% mm. get why. Like, Palpatine is reasonably charismatic. He is from this this world that has suffered under um, kind of the increasing economic tensions in the Republic. Yeah. And, and, and I think people will do a lot of things not to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And fear is uncomfortable and unknown is uncomfortable. And people will go, mm -hmm. I am scared. I am going to subscribe to the thing that makes me feel less scared. I am going to, start listening to the person that tells me that the problem with that, that my discomfort is valid, which is good and should be projected to and meted out on other people. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm uncomfortable with this type of person with this race of person. Mm -hmm. I'm going to listen to the person who tells me there's nothing wrong with the way you're feeling. And in fact, you're right. And the problem is them, and they need to be gotten rid of. Yes, that's not very. That that that's that's a dangerous game to play, and I'm yes. not saying it can never be correct. Not the not the race thing, but specifically, like <laughs> yeah. there might be times where where you might be feeling uncomfortable. You might be feeling uncomfortable about something, and someone says, "Well, that's the problem," and they're right. That does sometimes <laughs> happen, <laughs> but easy, simple answers are way more comforting and way more appealing than complicated ones. And the thing is, 
is that complicated answers are almost always the only ones that are accurate and correct. Yes, yes. Because uh, it's a complicated look, world. You look at the Nazis, it's like, we're having an economic trouble. Who do we blame? Uh, Jews and communists. Okay. Yeah. Just pick a guy. Wrap it up in a bow. It's, it's like, oh, how nice. <laughs> and you're right, because the easy answers are what people sometimes want. When the real answers to the problems of the world are more nuanced than that. I'm, I'm going to make a strange comparison here. I was reading in in the Bible earlier. There's a part in Isaiah where it talks about people being so scared they find one person and say, you, you be our king. You help us. Because we're afraid. Um, it's the idea of you know you Mussolini, you Hitler, you you know Idi Amin, you take care of us. We need help. And uh, you know it's finding that like we're scared, so we'll follow you. Because and that's the thing about real world crises is it 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 it's easy to manipulate people when they are afraid and it's not always wrong but many times in history you're right we have seen where it can so easily go the wrong way and that's sort of the what's happening in attack of the clones i say thank goodness at least senator organa knew what was going on and he was pretty upset when they did vote to give Palpatine that power. So at least there were a couple of good guys. At you least know, a Pat couple. May and Senator Organa and Monmouth and many other people. So we come now to Revenge of the Sith, which we could spend hours upon hours analyzing the politics of Revenge of the Sith because this is where it goes really in. This is the story that George Lucas had been wanting to tell for a long time where we actually see the downfall of everything and the rise of the Empire. Um, There's so many things that we could talk about. What is something that resonates with you in terms of the politics of Revenge of the Sith. What gets me about Revenge of the Sith is the way in which the Jedi are essentially sitting ducks. They know that bad stuff is going to happen. They know that the war is going bad. They know that there is a plot and Sith involvement in the war and they fall right into it um because they have so irrevocably tied themselves to the republic to the state that anything that happens to it Mm. kind of affects their culture so deeply that they can't come back from it Mm. and i i think i think it kind of speaks to the way where it where it's like I think a governmental system 
has to be, uh, generally speaking, uh, by and for the people whom it governs, right? Yes. Yeah. And the Jedi are not a government. The mm. Jedi are an order of powerful people. Yeah. Not just physically powerful, not just powerful in the force, politically and socially powerful. Mm-hmm. And they are not serving the people who they intend to serve, who they nominally care about. They mm-hmm. serve the Republic. And so the Republic here is going downhill. And they kind of just got to go, eh, okay, and deal with it. Yeah. And there are Jedi who are, I mean, fully amenable to what is essentially Republic propaganda, um, mm-hmm. including Anakin, but also kind of including like Obi-Wan. Yeah. Obi-Wan has fully bought into the war. He doesn't mm-hmm. always like the aesthetics. He doesn't always like the, the, the guns or whatever, but yeah. he's not nearly so like like he's he's if you asked Obi prequel era Obi-Wan if he like if he was in favor of the war, he would go, Well, bloodshed's really bad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you'd be like, Well, do you think this is a just war? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he'd give you an answer. And I just I think when you have institutions like that, that are adjacent to power and their only role is to Mm -hmm. prop that system up, Mm. not so that it's a system that functions and makes good choices for people, but so that Mm -hmm. it remains the way it is. And the Jedi refuse to change and the Republic refuses to change Mm -hmm. and they spiral into one another and all the Jedi are there to do, people who nominally should probably be looking out for, you know, the little guy, whatever that means, mm-hmm. all they do is to essentially reinforce the systems of power that already exist. Mm-hmm. They've lost. Like, it's over. It's, 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 a, it's a sentiment that comes up in the High Republic pretty often, which is, yeah. which is people over property, right? We care about looking after people. And mm-hmm. that's the main thing. And we are involved in the capital P political process as mm-hmm. much as it helps us look after the people of the Republic. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is not because we, I guess it's not because the Jedi are the Republic. It's mm-hmm. because the Republic is a, a body of power and mm-hmm. that can do things with that power. So you get familiar with that and you work the system. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Republic is, is way it is a system and it is not an entity. The Republic mm-hmm. is not a hegemony. It is not this this intractable essential thing. Mm-hmm. It's just people doing stuff. And I think the Jedi get so attached to the idea of it being an entity that they forget about the people kind of entirely. It becomes ultimately a separation of church and state issue. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. The Jedi order a church. What are they doing hanging out with politicians? Which is why, even though I am, I would call myself a religious person, I 100% believe that we shouldn't let them have political power. Now, I don't mean that people who happen to be Religious shouldn't be politicians. I mean that 
the institution of a church should not really intermingle with politics or the institution of the government because that is not how you run a government. And you're absolutely right that the Jedi throughout the entire prequels are going along with the political process and forgetting about what it, what they're doing in the first place. In Phantom Menace, Mace Windu says about Anakin, now is not the time for this. The Republic is voting on a new Supreme Chancellor. And I'm thinking, so he thinks voting on a new Chancellor is more important than the Chosen One. Uh, Mace Windu, I just did a, a podcast last week about that Mace sort of represents the dogma of the Jedi at that time. Um, he's very inflexible. Um, getting stuck in the rules and in the political game as opposed to the the spirituality of the order. Um, what are your thoughts on Mace Windu as it pertains to this story of the Jedi's fall? I see Mace Windu as a person who I have a very charitable view of Mace Windu, all things considered, because I think he yes. messes up a lot, but I don't feel any like, I don't know, so does Yoda. I feel like Mace Windu wants to play the system. He he feels like he can play the game. He feels like the Jedi mm. can play the game. And he is so kind of baked into that that by the time that it is genuinely too late, mm-hmm. he I I don't think it was necessarily an overreaction of him to to go and try to overthrow the the chance because i I can't get it but like yeah but at the same time it's like i don't know you're gonna execute the sitting leader of the galaxy essentially yeah and because like what if he is a sith Mm -hmm. then what you have like sure you know that sith are interfering in the clone wars you have to be able to prove that you have to be able to prove that and prove that that is a problem that he is committing this huge like false flag operation and instead mace windu goes this system is supposed to work i have been working within this system oh the reason it doesn't work is because the guy on top is ontologically evil mm-hmm. and mace go- and mace goes the way we make it work is by getting rid of him and you could say, you could well make the argument that if you had tried to take Palpatine to, to court or whatever, he mm-hmm. would have weaseled his way out. He probably would have because yeah. the plot demands it. Yeah. But there was no way. Who becomes chancellor if Palpatine dies? You know? Mm, interesting. What happens to the war? And I don't think the Republic becomes the Empire, obviously. Mm-hmm. I don't think the Republic gets better. I think 
Palpatine weaponizes certain things about the way mm-hmm. the world is. Yeah. And accelerates it a little bit. And adds his own little Sith flares to things, making them a little, a little bit worse and a little bit worse. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the Republic was still in a really bad place. I don't think getting rid yeah. of Palpatine would have saved things. I think they would have probably... I, I think either the CIS would have won, and the CIS is horribly corrupt, mm-hmm. or... And Dooku would have done whatever Dooku would have done. Or the Republic wins the war and they do become more of an autocracy. And Mm -hmm. I don't know how to solve that. You know, I'm not out here inventing the solution to world peace, but Mm -hmm. I think the the problems are bigger than the Sith. And I think, I think they're looking out for the Sith and they know that they are the Jedi. So they oppose the Sith. Mm -hmm. And as soon as, as, the problem as soon as it seems like the problem isn't systemic i think mace is too quick to jump on that i guess mm-hmm. sorry that was kind of a roundabout answer i had to kind of figure out exactly how i was feeling no, about that but... i absolutely agree and it's it's a, an interesting i had not really considering that but that those are some really good points um the the politics of the prequels are so applicable to real life that we could go hours and hours um but to sort of to bring things toward the end one of the things that i think is so powerful in star wars is the idea of hope it's the idea when when everything goes wrong when all the chips are down when everything is just a mess there is still that hope to be found because I think that in our modern world, it's very easy to look at the news and lose hope. But what Star Wars ultimately teaches us is that you know, don't lose hope. There, There's a great line in The Rise of Skywalker, one of my favorite lines, is when Zori Bliss says to Poe Dameron, they win by making you think you're alone. The idea that if we give in to fear and doubt, that's what allows the bad guys to win. Um, what do you think of the idea of hope in Star Wars? I think I think we have to ask what hope is. And I think I think what it means in the context of Star Wars is largely this it is kind of an aspirational thing. It is things can and should get better. Mm-hmm. Which I mean you might say it's a little woolly, but I think it's a really necessary political message. I agree. Because again, I think it can be really easy to become apathetic to the world mm-hmm. that you are in because things are bad, because people abuse power, because uh, people like you are being harmed. Yeah. And 
I think it, I think it actually was after 9 11, mm-hmm. uh, on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Yes. Uh, Fred Rogers said mm-hmm. that his mother told him, I think if I remember correctly, his mother told him that in the time of a tragedy and you feel so like so much despair, look for the people who are helping. Yep. Look for the people who care. One of my favorite quotes ever. And I think that's one of the things that Star Wars does mm-hmm. is it says, look, there's a genocide going on. There is mm-hmm. the rise of a fascist government. There is the resurgence of a fascist government. There are still people who care. Mm-hmm. There are people who are taking action against that. And they might not always be people who share your exact same worldview. Mm-hmm. They might not be people who are big enough to immediately solve the problem, mm-hmm. but they exist. And there can be more of them mm-hmm. because the more and more people are hurt, the more and more people are going to say, I don't want to get hurt anymore. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Star Wars shows us that when things are bad, there are people who are doing something about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's very resonant because like, I often feel sad looking at the types of people that are given power um, in my country or the types of laws that get passed Mm -hmm. in my hometown or and the ways they treat people like me or the ways in which people talk about uh, the political system or what have you Mm -hmm. and that's a bummer I'm not going to pretend that like that's not worth feeling scared about. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's irrational. I think that's really reasonable. But I'm not the only person who feels that way. I'm not the only mm-hmm. person who's nervous. I'm not the only person who's made unsafe by certain laws. Yeah. And and I mean it is one of the potentially only wonderful things about the internet that I can find those people really easily mm-hmm. and you know i might be able to find people who are organizing who are putting together a, a protest or who are talking with their local representative or who are going to be canvassing for someone and like is that less emotionally cathartic than throwing up your hands and giving up yes It's way less emotionally cathartic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But one, it means that maybe if you are doing some of that work, and let's be clear, I don't do enough of that work myself. Mm -hmm, But if you are doing some of that work, you are hopefully making the world a little bit better for the next person like you who feels that despair, who kind of wants to be apathetic about it. And it also means that you're doing something. And it's much harder to feel miserable about the state of the world if you are doing something with the people who also care about it. Mm -hmm. and i don't you know maybe you don't fix things but at least you're trying because even if you're not trying there are other people who are trying and you might as well jump on the wagon with them you know so i think that's what star wars does i I think you're right absolutely is the idea of, of let's do what we can even if it might not seem like it's a lot right 
it will ultimately, I think, yield good results eventually. It may take a long time, but I think it will. And uh, one of the great things I think also about Star Wars is that it brings people together. These stories bring people together. These stories are what make it so you and I could be sitting here talking about a galaxy far, far away. Um, and you meet all sorts of wonderful people. And don't let YouTube fool you. Most Star Wars fans are good people. You know, forget Most those guys making their... You know, forget all those people in their clickbait videos. But that's really what Star Wars is it, at its core is. It brings people together and it tells us that there is hope. There is reason to 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 do something great. And, and I love that you quoted Mr. Rogers because that is a quote that has resonated with me. Is the idea of look at the people who are doing good things. And all of Star Wars in some way or another is the story of people doing good. Even when things are terrible, we just um, did the book club for, what was it, Escape from Bellow? Or... Yes. Yeah. Well, I had forgotten the title earlier today. But we had just been on Alex's uh, book review. And that's a story of, here's a male occupation. And here's a bunch of kids doing good things. So I guess as we sort of finish up, Star Wars is about the people choosing to do good. George Lucas himself said, every day you have the opportunity to help people or not. And that's what Star Wars is really all about. Um, Ellie, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today. I really appreciate the invite. This is the first time that... uh that I've been on someone else's show, so. Yes, and uh, and thank you so much for your insight. Absolutely. Uh, everybody, please go subscribe to Daughters of Therex. <laughs> it's a fantastic podcast. It's, of course, a great name. I'm surprised it wasn't taken, frankly. Yeah, because we, I mean, we love Andor. I mean, it, it, to an insane degree, we love it. And um, so as we sort of end, I have to ask really quick, how excited are you for the Acolyte? I'm very excited for the Acolyte. I think I think it's uh, it's got a good chance of really knocking it out of the park. Yeah, I certainly hope so. I know that um, Leslie Headland has put a lot of enthusiasm into this. Yeah. And of course, I can't wait to see the High Republic on the screen. Can't wait to see something different on the screen. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's getting closer. There's a rumor it might come out in June. Fingers crossed. Hopefully that rumor is true. And for now, we have the Bad Batch, which is a lot of fun. And also a lot of great messages about you know, that are applicable to the state of the world. It's a smart show, The Bad Batch. 
It is. And, and I love Omega. She's awesome. So can't wait to see where it goes. But um so Ellie, where can we find you? You can find me at the Letter Bomber on most platforms. Uh, I mostly just use Twitter, where I, surprise, surprise, largely just talk about Star Wars. Uh, I okay. would much rather you go and find uh, our show at Ferrix Pod on most platforms, or you can find us on, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, uh, or on YouTube, or on our website, daughtersofferrix.com. Awesome. And I recommend that people please go do Thank you. Well, everyone, my name is Brennan Mart, the Noisy Hearings by Ventilator. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Guest Awakens, presented by Page Turners Day or Not, my Star Wars podcast. May the Force be with you.